Fair sends letter to University of Minnesota over discriminatory grant criteria. A media-fueled social panic over unmarked graves. And Jen Speck's open letter to the American Academy of Pediatrics. Welcome to Fair News Weekly. To read all of the articles discussed in this podcast, please visit this podcast's episode description. On August 2nd, 2022, FAIR's legal team sent a letter to the University of Minnesota in response to a FAIR transparency report regarding the Pre-K Discovery Scholars Program through the university's Clinical and Translational Science Institute. The program, which provides a $50,000 grant to junior faculty members to support their research, is only open to faculty who are underrepresented in health-related sciences or who are from a disadvantaged background, as defined by NIH. Individuals are automatically eligible if they are Black or African American, Hispanic or Latino, American Indian or Alaska Native, Native Hawaiian, and other Pacific Islander. FAIR reminded the university that establishing funding opportunities based on skin color or ancestry violates the Equal Protection Guarantee of the 14th Amendment and Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, and urged the university to revise the application criteria for the program so that any individual can apply in future cycles, regardless of skin color or ancestry. Also on August 2nd, FAIR's legal team sent a letter to Connecticut Innovations, CI, a venture capital firm. The company recently received $120 million of federal funding through the American Rescue Plan Act. Through a FAIR transparency report, FAIR learned that CI plans to use part of those funds to establish the Connecticut Future Fund, CTFF, which will be used to support entrepreneurs from underserved and diverse backgrounds. As an organization committed to pro-human anti-racism, FAIR supports efforts to achieve greater fairness and provide opportunities for entrepreneurs to start businesses. However, such efforts must be consistent with the Constitution and other civil rights protections. Fair's letter preemptively encouraged CI to consider entrepreneurs' financial need when investing the CTFF funds, rather than the skin color, ancestry, or other protected characteristics of the business owner. This week on our Substack, Melissa Knox shares her perspective on the recent Supreme Court ruling of Roe v. Wade by Justice Alito, noting that on all sides of the debate, more mercy for the other is warranted. She also points out that it is often those we don't see or hear from that are the most affected by these decisions. Knox states, It is these women, those who are not living but existing from day to day, beleaguered by poverty, ignorance, and drug abuse who suffer the most. So often, undesired children themselves, born to teenage mothers too exhausted by life to raise them, fall into familiar patterns. These are the women who aren't shouting out their abortions, but hoping to survive somehow. The women who are often heard, educated women with an income, can usually find some way to have an abortion, whether it's legal or not. It's a luxury to have the ability to take off work, to make signs and hold them up during a rally. Other women, the ones who can't speak for themselves, who can't afford paint for their posters, or car fare, or babysitting money, who can't attend the rally, will be destroyed. Also on our Substack, Jefferson Shoup writes that the most recent Supreme Court decision didn't seize control over the abortion issue, quite the opposite, actually. He says they gave it up. Shoup also notes that while many are feeling disempowered over the ruling, state control over abortions allows us to better coexist. Shoup says, 
I know that some readers do not feel empowered right now, as their state might have a trigger law that gives them less latitude on this issue than they had before, but let's separate these things for a moment. The Dobbs ruling is not an abortion ban. In fact, from what I can find, it does not even frown upon the practice. This was the justices handing us the keys with an apology note. Found this in a drawer, belongs to you. Sorry for keeping it so long. This should be good news to both sides. For one, state control over abortion allows us to better coexist. That unity that I spoke of, we don't need to be united on this. For The Telegraph, Fair Advisor Inaya Fullerin Aman writes that public institutions must understand that there are consequences for caving into cancel culture, that there are fundamental moral as well as, yes, financial implications to censorship and historical vandalism. Iman writes, The phrase, go woke, go broke, refers to consumers protesting at a business wokery by withholding their cash in the hope that reduced income will spook a company into doing what it was originally meant to do, provide goods and services, and create jobs. There is something strangely democratic about it. But when it comes to public institutions, such as universities, which have become increasingly confused about their moral purpose, they can still rely on cash from the public purse. Hence, they have no problem appealing to vanishingly small minoritarian interests to the detriment of the majority. For Quillette, Fair Advisor Jonathan Kay describes a story regarding unmarked graves in Canada, which broke after the existence of ground-penetrating radar, GPR, data that indicated regularly spaced subterranean soil disturbances on the grounds of a former indigenous residential school. However, Kay notes that the GPR data didn't necessarily indicate the presence of graves, and that the subsequent nationwide social panic was unnecessary. Kay says, It's now been 14 months since the original announcement that was made about presumed graves in Kamloops, and no physical evidence has been unearthed. No graves, no corpses, no human remains. In fact, as far as I can tell, there doesn't seem to be any systematic effort by police or First Nation leaders to commence such investigations. Eventually, it began to strike the general public that this was a very odd way to treat a mass murder scene, even as pundits and politicians refused to change their early apocalyptic tone. For Psychology Today, Fair Advisor Pamela Pareski writes that psychological well-being requires recognizing the difference between discomfort and harm. Pareski notes the case of Isla Shapiro, who was the subject of controversy after tweeting criticism of President Biden for announcing that only black women would be considered for the Supreme Court, and the ways the reaction to Shapiro's statements doesn't bode well for academia. Pareski writes, Not only are Georgetown's actions troubling indicators of the state of campus free speech and the future of higher education more broadly, they entrench its campus ideological monoculture increasing interpersonal distrust, and reduce the already limited ability of those on campus to differentiate between unpopular opinions and actual harm. None of this bodes well for developing persuasive counterarguments or for mental health on campus. On July 18th, GenSpect, an international and nonpartisan organization which represents thousands of parents of gender dysphoric children, adolescents, and young adults, as well as trans people, detransitioners, clinicians, and allied groups, released a letter to the American Academy of Pediatrics. 
The letter outlined Genspec's concerns that the AAP is currently representing only one set of views on how to best help our children thrive. They write, We now have several independent systematic reviews of evidence that show that the benefits of these treatments are far from certain. However, the evidence of risks, such as harms to bones and the cardiovascular system, effects on the brain and other organs, sexual difficulties, and a future inability to have kids are mounting, as evidenced by a growing number of studies, where it has been decided that hormonal treatments, i.e. puberty blocking and cross-sex hormones, will not be initiated in gender dysphoric patients under the age of 16. For The New York Times, Pamela Paul writes that while the American publishing industry has long prided itself on publishing ideas and narratives that are worthy of our engagement, even if some might consider them unsavory or dangerous, and for standing its ground on freedom of expression, that ground is getting shaky. Though the publishing industry would never condone book banning, a subtler form of repression is taking place in the literary world restricting intellectual and artistic expression from behind closed doors, and often defending these restrictions with thoughtful-sounding rationales. As many top editors and publishing executives admit off the record, a real strain of self-censorship has emerged that many otherwise liberal-minded editors, agents, and authors feel compelled to take part in. For Cincinnati.com, Fair Network attorney Rachel Sitak writes about her experiences with racism growing up and in law school, and that while those experiences could all be sourced to microaggressions, racism, and white supremacy, it may be surprising to know that all of those experiences occurred among members of my own race. Sitak argues that anti-racism does not aim to use power to empower or inspire. It twists historical perspective in order to suit an ideological position. Sitak continues, let me be clear. I am proud to be black, and my blackness is not defined by anyone's insults or labels. I have never denied that racism exists. I experienced it firsthand as just a handful of black students in my graduating class at Turpin High School. I am adamant, however, that intraracial and interracial hate can never be resolved by anti-racist methods especially not in the classroom. Cultural sensitivity and so-called anti-racism training won't fix students who are ignorant to any exposure to black people, besides what they see on television. It won't heal the envy and strife that springs from the sharp socioeconomic divide at home in our township. It won't increase tolerance or dissolve division. Join our Fair in the Arts team and Fair in the Arts fellows to meet other artists who share pro-human values and want to make a difference in their own communities. Anyone who wants to create a culture where artists and others are free to express themselves and where we model pro-human values in arts and media institutions are welcome. Meetings will include updates on ongoing Fair in the Arts initiatives, as well as facilitated discussion group sessions. Join us on August 17th and September 20th from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern. Register now with the links in the description. Do you want to share the message of FAIR with others but are worried that it might start a fight? There is a better way. Empower yourself with the knowledge and skills to have better conversations. Share FAIR's pro-human message and engage without risking your relationships. Register today for this highly interactive live virtual training happening on August 16th at 6 p.m. Eastern. Link in the description. FAIR in Medicine, the official network of healthcare professionals advancing FAIR's mission in medicine and science, is hosting a fellowship for graduate students in healthcare. This is an opportunity for medical students and graduate students in healthcare-related fields to learn about FAIR's tools, 
strategies, and principles of peaceful change, and to spread FAIR's message on campus or in healthcare settings. Fellows will help promote FAIR's message by participating in a FAIR project, which they will share throughout their networks at their school or workplace. Projects may include working on webinars, podcasts, writing, research, and planning virtual or in-person events. Applications are open until July 31st. Calling all FAIR book lovers. The FAIR Fellows in Education invite you to our new FAIR Book Club, where all FAIR-minded readers can explore books that challenge and deepen our understanding of what it means to be pro-human. We kicked off the club with our first book, Caver Boy by Mark Mathabane, with a Zoom session on July 27th, and we'll host a second conversation on August 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern. We hope that you'll join us as we dive into this powerful memoir about the author's coming of age under apartheid in South Africa. We want the FAIR Substack to be the go-to publication for diverse perspectives on culture and civil rights. Whether you're a seasoned author or an amateur writer with a story that can contribute to our mission of promoting fairness, understanding, and humanity, we would love to receive your stories, opinions, investigations, reviews, interviews, and more. Please send your piece to submissions at fairforall.org. We hope to hear from you. Finally, if you liked this podcast, subscribe, share it with a friend, and leave us a rating and review. Make sure to check out our newsletter and weekly roundup to read more into any of this week's stories, or visit the episode description. Donations are always welcome at fairforall.org slash donate.